The tech billionaires that rule our world have a mindset. The mindset ends up with the belief that if they can somehow make enough money and technology, they can escape the catastrophes that they're creating by earning money and using technology in those ways. <laughs> so it's this idea that you can somehow build a car that can go so fast that it escapes from its own exhaust. That's digital philosopher Douglas Rushkoff. We talk with him about his book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Then we air our 2020 interview with indigenous philosopher Tyson Yonkaporta about his book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Six of the ten richest people in the world made their fortunes in the tech industry. And now the richest person in the world, Elon Musk, has joined the ranks of the tech overlords with his acquisition of Twitter. What's the mindset of these rarefied members of the human community who rule our lives in so many ways? It's something my guest Douglas Rushkoff began to uncover when five mysterious billionaires summoned him to a desert resort for a private talk. The topic, how to survive the event, the societal catastrophe they know is coming. Rushkoff came to understand that these men were under the influence of the mindset, with a capital M, a Silicon Valley-style certainty that they and their cohort can break the laws of physics, economics, and morality to escape a disaster of their own making, as long as they have enough money and the right technology. Rushkoff has been in the tech space since the early 90s, when the Internet was supposed to unleash a decentralized, democratic, global, open society. But in his book, Survival of the Richest, Rushkoff describes an unholy marriage of the digital revolution and capitalism that transformed the dream of a worldwide digital web into a nightmare of surveillance, disinformation, manipulation, and erosion of democracy. Douglas Rushkoff is professor of media theory and digital economics at Queens slash CUNY. Named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT, he hosts the Team Human podcast and has written many award-winning books. Douglas Rushkoff, it's been a long time, but welcome back to Writer's Voice. Thanks for having me. This is such an important book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. It's actually about a lot more than that. It's about a whole worldview and a mindset that's dominant in our world today and is causing so many problems. You were invited by a group of billionaires to give them a very exclusive consultation kind of a strange thing for a Marxist digital economist, as you call yourself. Why did they invite you? Um, well, usually the uh, wealthy tech entrepreneurs, they, they invite me for one of two reasons, either because they want, they think I'm a futurist and can give them some hint on where to place their bets 
for the future. What's coming down the pike? What do I need to know about? Um, but ones who know my work, I think they invite me more as a kind of a, an intellectual dominatrix. You know, <laughs> I'll come in there and show them that I see what they're doing and why it's wrong. And they can kind of um, admit to themselves how awful they are and how they've really missed the plot and then uh, go back to what they were doing on Monday morning. Yes, but this particular group, I mean, you you thought, again, you thought they were going to invite you in as a futurist, but no, they had some very specific questions that surprised you, were they? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it was the ultimate futurist uh, questions they had. You know, I, I thought I was supposed to do a talk, but instead of bringing me um, out of the green room, they brought these five men into the green room. They sat around a table and started asking me those kind of first, those typical betting questions like, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or augmented reality or virtual reality. But then they finally got to um, Alaska or New Zealand. And they spent really the whole hour with me um, asking me questions about their doomsday preparations, the bunkers that they had uh, you know, that they had been building, you know, one of them had Alaska, one of them had New Zealand, someone else was working on an island, someone else wanted to do seasteading where they build a raft and bring it out to the ocean and connect it to other ones and make their own nation. So um, they were really having me um, kind of water test their apocalypse preparations to the point where they, they finally asked me um, about how to maintain control of their security force after their money was worthless. So I was supposed to be some kind of a future anthropologist giving them Machiavellian strategies for maintaining order in their compound. You know, that just really encapsulates it. I mean, here, first of all, they want to retain the loyalty of people for whom they have not prepared or caused in any way to have loyalty to them other than money. So if the money is worthless, um, you you actually had a suggestion for them, but they looked at you completely askance. Yeah, well, I told them the way to make sure their uh, security force took care of them after the event, which is what they called the, uh, you know, apocalyptic problem. The best way to maintain that would, would be to be nice to them today. And I even joked, you know, the way to make sure your head of security doesn't shoot you in the bunker is to pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today. And I was it was a joke, but I meant it almost as if if they were nicer to people and had less extractive, awful business practices and polluted the world a bit less, then maybe they wouldn't need to be preparing for an apocalypse at all. <laughs> Yeah, I had to think of the the contrast to Rebecca Solnit's book called uh, Paradise Built in Hell, you know, where she writes about disaster and how people come together in disasters. They come together to help each other. And that was a completely foreign idea to these folks. And it all boils down to a mindset, capital M, the mindset that is actually a determinant of much of the crises and the reality that they that we face, and that they are now planning for some kind of end game. What is this mindset? Well, I guess, you know, the mindset ends up with the belief that if they can somehow make enough money and technology, they can escape the catastrophes that they're creating by earning money and using technology in those ways. You know, so it's this idea that you can somehow build a car that can go so fast that it escapes from its own exhaust. But 
I guess what the, what the mindset really comes from, this notion that you can outrun all the damage that you're externalizing to the rest of the world, it comes from a kind of a perverse understanding of science and technology. It's interesting when you go back, you know, historically and look at Francis Bacon, who's credited with being the uh, founder of empirical science. He said that science would let us take nature by the forelock, hold her down and submit her to our will. So it was this idea that science was not really an inquiry, a way to open to new questions about our existence, but a way of containing and controlling all that unpredictable stuff in nature and women and darkness and the moon and all those scary feelings that people have. Now we can just put a number, put a quantity on something and reduce it down to just that. And it became just really consonant with, with colonialism and slavery and the extraction of resources from different places, you know, the, the, the subjugation of, of black people and women. Uh, it was really consonant with capitalism and IP, the idea that you are inventing something completely new and then you own it entirely. And it, it developed through digital technology into this tech bro mindset where they can use technology to solve any problem. And they start looking at human beings and human society as the problem and technology and programming as the way to fix it. And that's really this, this mindset that they can sort of lord above regular human civilization from one order of magnitude higher than us and kind of operate their keyboards and algorithms to um, make the world less frightening for them. I mean, it's a very kind of infantile outlook. Yeah, but partly that's because a lot of these guys, they get, you know, plucked from college when they're just freshmen. I mean, I remember what it was like to be a freshman in college, you know, having crazy conversations and one person reads Ayn Rand and someone else is reading Marquis de Sade and you try on all these ideas, but they get plucked from freshman year by a you know a venture capitalist who likes the the thing that they invented in their dorm room whether it's you know google was invented in a dorm room at stanford and facebook was invented you know when when zuckerberg's a, a freshman at harvard and then they they go before their brains are even developed before the myelin sheaths have formed on their frontal lobe and they have impulse control you know they're transferring parental authority onto some venture capitalist and pivoting their great, young, wonderful, naive idea towards something um, entirely extractive and manipulative. Yeah, you know, one of the things that really interested me is how this book, Survival of the Richest, really kind of unpacks the total lack of morality, the complete lack of a sense of responsibility to anyone else. I mean, the profound psychopathology of the system that has become so dominant. I mean, you root it in capitalism. You go back to, you know, the development of the corporation and colonialism that supplanted local markets, the beginning of, of globalism. But it really goes on steroids with the digital revolution. And you were part of that digital revolution in the early, in the 80s, early 90s. I was around then as well. I mean, I wasn't in your position, but I've been doing this podcast since two thousand. This, this uh, podcast since two thousand six, when 
that was even before there was a complete takeover by um, by capital of the of the media space. Let's say the digital media space. It was supposed to be very different. Talk about those roots and where did it go wrong? Well, I mean, it depends. I think my opinion on where it went wrong may have may have changed over time. I mean, in the late 80s and early 90s, when I was the most involved in this digital renaissance that, that we're talking about, those of us who were building and playing with these technologies saw them as ways to connect people in new ways. We thought that digital technology, particularly networking digital technologies, would allow us to think together in very new ways, that we would unleash the potential of the collective human imagination. And it was a slightly wild, progressive California counterculture with, you know, strains of the hippies and strains of psychedelia and strains of that sort of Esalen, you know, spiritual movement, all looking at these technologies as the ways to realize that almost 1960s vision of a more peaceful, collaborative, and communal society. But by the, the mid-90s, Wired magazine came along and really did recast, they recontextualized this digital renaissance as a business revolution that, you know, they, they published a, a cover of Wired magazine that said, thanks to the internet, the economy will be able to grow exponentially around the world, uninterrupted forever, that this was it. And everybody poured in. And once the digital technology became about reifying the growth rate of the stock exchange, then the priorities of the technology became very different. When I was first using the internet in the early 90s, Big business was complaining that the average internet connected household in America was watching nine hours less television a week. So they looked at the internet as a drain on the economy. And that's why they had to come and kind of take it over. And when they did, once we were looking at how do we use these technologies on people in order to extract money from them, rather than how do we let people use these technologies to do whatever they want, um, the whole bias, the whole dynamic of this change. We, we were not giving people tools. We were using the tools on people, which is back. It's consistent with the mindset that people are just like little animals that we should, you know, manipulate and control and steer um, with our technology from one level above, above, above all of them. But, you know, as I've been looking at it longer, though, I realize a lot of the people developing technology since the really the earliest days have been using it toward the mindset. I remember there's a story I tell in the book about when I was at uh, Timothy Leary's house and he's reading the book, The Media Lab by uh, Stuart Brand about Nicholas Negroponte's new media lab at MIT, where so many of these technologies were developed. And he, he's reading the book and I'm thinking that he's loving it because he's writing all these notes in it. And as soon as he's done, he goes, and he throws it across the room like it was this, you know, piece of poison. And he said, first, there's, you know, less than 2% of the names in the, in the index are women. That's how you know they've got a problem. 
And then he said, and second, you know, from reading this, I can see these guys want to recreate the womb. Their mothers were unable to anticipate their every need, and now they want to use technology to build a bubble around themselves and get these algorithms and robots to bring them what they want before they even know they want it themselves. And um, I understand that too. So it's not just that big business came and ruined this stuff. It's that for a lot of programmers, they did see technology as a way of making reality safer and more predictable, less eye-to-eye, less human-driven, and a little bit more like math. And, um, you know, unfortunately, when, when those two agendas dovetail, you know, the need of capitalism to have exponential growth no matter what, and the need of a particular community of programmers and technology developers who are kind of scared of people to build these things, um, you end up with, you know, with what we've got, which is a very, um, I would argue, kind of anti-human, anti-social digital environment. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. My guest is digital philosopher Douglas Rushkoff, and we're talking about his latest book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Stuart Brand, of course, was the creator, or one of the creators of the Whole Earth Catalog, which had that earlier vision, very, very different from the Media Lab I just want to tell a little story. My father, uh, Guido Turnerson, who was a, uh, I didn't grow up with him, but he he helped build Esalen, and he knew Stuart Brand, and I uh, heard him talking on tape in a conversation sometime in the 80s when he said of the closing down the whole Earth catalog, he said they they closed it down, they sold it off. They made nine million USD and went off just as if you caught the bird of paradise and boiled a little soup from it, and everybody gets a little drop. Yeah. I mean Stuart Brand is a very interesting character. There's a new biography about him too. You know, because he was part of the hippie movement, but he was also a um he was a military man, you know, and he, he did look at things with somewhat or does look at things with somewhat of a dominator a dominator mentality. You know, he's the one who said, we are as gods and may as well get good at it. And that's an odd thing. You know, I don't think we're as gods, we're as people, you know, and, and a lot of these folks, you know, like a Peter Thiel or Elon Musk, they do think of themselves as gods, lording above the rest of humanity. And it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's a dangerous outlook. I mean, I understand it's self-reinforcing. Once you've got billions of dollars, you start to feel that removed. But a few of them, even poor little Mark Zuckerberg, you know, now he says he wants to give back 95% of his money. And all I can say to that is, well, you took 95% too much to begin with. What if you had made Facebook 95% less awful, less extractive? You know, if you didn't need to earn all that money, you didn't have to turn our social network, you know, into a surveillance a surveillance capitalist machine. You know, where would we be if he had had that insight when he was just a little bit younger? Yes, but this particular group, I mean, you you thought, again, you thought they were going to invite you in as a futurist, but no, they had some very specific questions that surprised you, were they? Right. I mean, I think it counts as amoral because amoral, you know, it's like non, it's not immoral, it's amoral. It's just morality is not acknowledged as as real. 
you know, it's, it's some, it's like a personality trait or flaw, you know, of a, of a, of a system that doesn't exist. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm weird because I believe we live in a moral universe or, or that morality is somehow embedded that we can feel it. We, we have an innate sense of justice um, in us because we are connected to each other and we, we are compassionate that these are real, but you know, folks like Pinker believe that, you know, thanks to technology and capitalism and all this great white Western post enlightenment stuff, that the world is just unequivocally better. You know, that uh, life expectancy is longer, violence is down, this is down, that's down, but it depends how you define violence. It depends how you define life. I mean, or you could even just look at it that, when you're talking to a weightlifter who's on steroids, you know, who's just upped his dose, he's like, I can lift more. <laughs> I can lift more. Yes. By those metrics, you can lift more, but for how much longer? And what's happened to the rest of your life? What's happened to your personality? So, you know, if you, if you use certain metrics and you optimize everything for those metrics, like economic growth or longevity of individual people in white Western capitalist nations today, you, you can externalize a lot of harm and poison and shorten lifetimes to people in other places. Yes, and not to speak of the end of the world and the sixth extinction. Right. Exactly. At what cost? So yes, you've managed, yes, we managed to get to a place where by 1970, Women in the UK were as tall and healthy as women were in the late medieval period of England, when we had a peer-to-peer -peer economy and local markets and people were working three, four hours or three, four days a week. You know, so yes, we caught up by the late 70s, early 80s with medievalism, but at what cost? You know, at what, with what agricultural practices, with topsoil that's going to last how many more seasons before that's gone. You know, in some ways we need global warming to reveal some new land under the permafrost so we can start growing vegetables again. And maybe we could do it without the Monsanto stuff so that we could do it in a regenerative way rather than the extractive way that destroys, uh, it takes all the nutrients out of the, out of the soil before the food's grown. Yeah, but that's after the methane is already... <laughs> It made it yeah. way too hot for anything, the methane that's released from the permafrost. Um, you know, you call up behavioral economics as well. And I remember when Obama got Cass Sunstein, who's one of the progenitors, I guess, of behavioral economics or touters of it. And I I've never trusted them. Uh, talk about behavioral e economics and, and just how, how toxic it is. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I only really found out about behavioral economics because um, the same scientists who I was, you know, arguing with, you know, scientists and, and technologists, you know, the, the heads of these companies before they were billionaires, you know, the Bezoses and Steve Case and all those folks and the Google boys. When I would argue for a more human-centered technology and they would laugh at me that I was as if I'm some relic, you know, from the Bible for arguing these things, the next thing they were going to was a series of conferences on behavioral economics. And really what behavioral economics is, is looking at what are the distortions that people have about money and how can those distortions be leveraged? So, you know, so if you look at, say, you look at money in the future as less valuable than money in the present, how can a credit card company use that fact, use that psychology to get you to sign on to terms that are actually less favorable to you? And it's, it's, 
for digital people, behavioral economics is the beginning of looking at how do we use technology to manipulate people. It's what they at Stanford, what the department is called captology, which is how do you do things to people online that get them to alter their behaviors in ways that are favorable to your company? How do you get people to do stuff that's really against their own best interests or against their own instincts? And that's where we get people taking, you know, the the algorithms from the slot machines in in Las Vegas and porting them over to the uh, social media feeds that your 12 year old is using as a way of figuring out, you know, how do we addict to these kids? So it's really taking behavioral economics as it's currently practiced is taking everything we know about how to manipulate people's behavior and figuring out ways to write algorithms that can uh, conduct these uh, inductions on people in real time. When I was reading about this in your book, Douglas Brushkoff, A Survival of the Richest, I was thinking about, I, I mean, maybe this is not a new phenomenon, but I was thinking about the generalization of people voting against their own interest. How easily people have been, you know, subject, basically that we are so getting progressively more alienated from understanding the true reality that is around us so that people are able to vote directly against their own interest and think they're doing the right thing because they're owning the libs. Well, I mean, partly that's because I mean, partly the, the liberal policies have become, you know, so technocratic for you know all of his his great qualities. You know, um, um, Obama was a technocrat, right? He really looked at these big top-down system solutions for things, and didn't really offer the opportunity for engagement that he ran on. You know, when he says we are the change we've been waiting for and then doesn't create an opportunity for engagement, people like me, we ended up doing Occupy. You know, and <laughs> Occupy was not something that Obama even approved of till pretty late um, in the game. You know, and that was that was in some ways that was the movement that he started that then um, Bernie Sanders picked up on. And there was this there's this real hunger for direct involvement, for engagement, for a return to a local sensibility. And. Um, liberal policies, though many of them are correct, right? Okay, we do want to trans, you know, we want to um, um, convert to renewable technologies and solar panels and all that. You you need to argue for it in a way that doesn't make someone feel like, wait a minute, my family's been digging coal on this ground for the last four generations, and now Hillary Clinton's coming along and telling me I've got to, you know, they're gonna, she's gonna close my plant, and I've got to get retrained making solar panels for some international Chinese company I've never heard of. It's like, what's this? Um, you, the the arguments really need to be made in a way that that restores people's faith and reliance and dependence on their neighbors and their local community and all. You know, if we don't reclaim the local, if the left doesn't reclaim the social, which is what Marx was really talking about, that's all he really meant was that our interactions are social. You know, you make the beans, I bring the beef and together we get a burrito and we're friends because of it. Um, if we don't reclaim the social, then local ends up becoming this kind of blood and soil. You know, this thing, I, I, I see my words even, you know, about, you know, we are not 
we are not numbers, we are not programs, we don't want to be manipulated, we want to return to our, our local roots and make friends with our neighbors and collect and forge solidarity. You know, that kind of language, I heard it in the speeches by the new, you know, Italian uh, prime minister, who's a, a far-right extremist. You know, so they're the ones who've reclaimed the human. And that's really, you know, that's that's what we need to do. And to say, oh, no, no, no. The human that you're talking about is a very different one. You know? <laughs> the human you're talking about is, uh, uh, um, you know, the, the way that the way that tech bros talk about it would be a self-sovereignty, you know, which is what does that even mean? That's such an oxymoron. You're king of yourself. They've objectified so much that now that you can even objectify yourself. So you're, you're, you're the king and the subject. There's a lot of real, you know, uh, social, intellectual and, and ethical dead ends that arise from the co-option of our local social human uh, dignity ideas. It feels to me that what the right is really saying is we don't have any responsibility to anybody other than ourselves or myself. I don't owe you anything. We are not part of one world. We are not part of one country. And actually, I think I see a direct relationship between the kind of psychopathology that you talked, uh, you know, that has been promoted by these uh, tech bros, as you call them, uh, and their domination and these these algorithms, this kind of manipulation away from not only a sense of reality, but a sense of any kind of a social responsibility. Right. But they cynically use the blood and soil. I mean, it's interesting. They, rather than people being connected to their actual communities, what they do is they talk about like the Omega point or the, the great fractal at the end of time or the strange attractor or this new state. So they hold something up, this sort of goal, this, this dream on top of the mountain that we, we, you know, somehow arrive at, and then everything's fine. So I agree, they completely ignore conditions on the ground for this kind of holy grail that people are moving to, where then finally their sense of identity and self and ownership and integrity and dignity is, is restored. Um, so, you know, I, I agree with you there. And, you know, the, the digital media environment, if we don't work against some of its biases, it leans toward these distinctions. You know, the digital is the one and the zero. Everything is here or there. It's all discrete. The The television environment was so much about the globe and hands across the hands around the world. Remember, uh, we had, you know, Marlo Thomas and free to be you and me. We had the moon landing and the felling of the Berlin Wall. You know, the television was really about connecting the world in one simultaneous moment of kind of love and connection that, you know, that, that sort of Oprah Winfrey understanding of the world. Digital is very different. Digital is one or zero. You know, it's not about tearing down the Berlin Wall. It's about building a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Are you a one or a zero, an us or them, a here or a there, a red or a blue? You know, the, the binary nature of of the world that we're moving into at the, the 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 extreme polarity is really reflective of the way digital works i mean someone like mcluhan would say of course you know the medium is the message and you're living in a in a one zero medium so you're turning into a one zero society 
So how do we push back? I mean, after all, these guys, these tech bros are the lords of the universe. They command, they have the commanding heights and the capture of our entire governments. I mean, how would cryptocurrency have been able to, to go so wild if they didn't have that kind of control? I mean, this totally bizarre, climate-destroying technology. How do we push back in a world in which they have that kind of dominance? Well, on the one hand, they, they have dominance, but their dominance is really limited to certain realms. You know, they're, they're, not, um, they're not between you and me when we're in the real world in the same room making eye contact or holding hands or talking about something or walking around. Um, you know, they, they own the digital realm and... They, they've pre-colonized the, the whatever they're calling Web 3. You know, they desperately want us to migrate as much as possible to Web 3, which is a realm where they will have total control. And they want to, you know, keep us as far away as possible from the real ground where we interact, from the, the local shops and the local crafts and the things that we can actually do for one another. So I would say um, the way to fight back is really to reclaim your neighborhoods and your neighbors to, I mean, gosh, some really, it sounds too easy, but you know, take a Sabbath. Start with that one day a week where you don't buy or sell, where you don't use any screens, where you don't drive in a car. You know, one day a week where you either hang out at home with your family or go outside and meet your neighbors, see what's in walking distance. Is there a park? Why is there not a park? Oh, they replaced it with a mall. How do you feel about that? How could you get a park back if there's nowhere for you to actually sit and talk with someone else? What favors can you do for people around? Is there an, uh, an elderly person who needs help in any way? Can you shovel their walk for them? Can you bring them to church or to the store? Are there kids that need tutoring? Are there illiterate people around that need to be taught to read? It's, it's so easy to get involved in your own community. What about taking half your retirement income and investing it locally? What businesses are there that are trying to open on your main street that you could, I mean, you could support those businesses. You can make your main street better. You're going to increase the tax base of your community, which will make your schools better and actually increase the value of your own house. So you can even look at it as a form of, of capitalism and local reinvestment. So I think there's tons and tons of ways of doing it. You can't do it all at once. You'll freak out, right? If you take your entire retirement account and, and start investing it locally and to help people in different, in different ways, you know, you, you may start to feel uncertain of your future because we unfortunately live in a world where, you know, you've got to earn enough money while you're working to take care of yourself by yourself when you're old because no one's around to take care of you. It's like, what? What human society is like that? Um, it's, it's bizarre. But until we get there, I mean, start engendering those things and start slow. And boy, it, it snowballs really fast. Well, that's great. Great answer. Doug Rushkoff, this is a great book. It's short. I want to tell my listeners it's short. It is fascinating. Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for, for creating space for the writer's voice. Douglas Rushkoff is professor of media theory and digital economics at Queen slash CUNY.
Next up, we hear my 2020 interview with Indigenous philosopher Tyson Yunkaporta about the antidote to the mindset, Indigenous thinking. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. While reading Douglas Rushkoff's book, Survival of the Richest, I was struck by his mention of Tyson Yunkaporta. An Aboriginal philosopher in Australia, Yunkaporta is a proponent of the kind of thinking that Rushkoff says is an antidote to the mindset of the tech billionaires. I spoke with Yunkaporta in 2020 about his book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Here's that interview. It's clear that Western thinking, with its emphasis on competition, dominion over and exploitation of the natural world, and enshrinement of hierarchy, isn't working. Indeed, it threatens our very existence. But isn't that human nature, that survival of the fittest way of thinking? Maybe not. In fact, for the vast majority of human existence, people didn't think that way. They thought of humans and the world we inhabit in relational terms, as Native Americans say, all my relations. When everything is part of your family, you take care of it. Native and Aboriginal cultures today have preserved that way of thinking, and it's well they have, because it might be just the kind of thinking we need. Author Tyson Yankaporta straddles the two worldviews, He's a member of the Aboriginal Appalachian clan in far north Queensland, Australia, who carves traditional tools and weapons, and he also works as a senior lecturer in Indigenous Knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne. His brilliant new book, Sand Talk, looks at global systems from an Indigenous perspective. He asks how contemporary life diverges from the pattern of creation. How does this affect us? How can we do things differently? How, in fact, can Indigenous thinking save the world? Well, Tyson Yonkaporta, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you. It's really good to be here. This is just such an amazing book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. When I read the title, I said, I must talk with the author because... I think it was just maybe this year that it occurred to me that indigenous thinking isn't only correct thinking or better thinking than what we have, but that it actually is a thinking that we need if we are going to save the world. And, And this book is as much about viewing civilization through aboriginal eyes as about aboriginal ways of being in the world. So I wonder if you could first just talk about that perspective, viewing civilization through Aboriginal eyes. Yeah, well, well, it's it's one thing viewing it, but then uh, reporting on what you view is another thing altogether. You know, you know, it's it's not the safest exercise in the world. <laughs> so, like, you know, for example, you'd be safe to say, you know, everything you just said about Aboriginal knowledge, but I wouldn't necessarily be safe to say it like that. So I, I kind of, I, I, I say it like, you know, oh, there might be some things in there that are of use, you know, there might be some, 
there might be some stuff. Don't throw the baby over the bathwater. Have a little look. There might be something useful in there. Um, <laughs> in the, and that's about as far as I can go because, um, you know, if I if I said the same thing you just said, you know, there'd be a lot of people who'd be like, you know, you hate white people or <laughs> whatever, you know. So I, I don't know. It's a, it's a dangerous space, um, but it's also, you know, lovely. And, and there are so many people like yourself who just want to come in and sit alongside and, um, and you know, learn the things that are useful and, and share things back that, that they have of use as well. But for me, it has to be dialogue. It's got to be dialogical. You know, if anybody's just monologuing at you, then probably that's not the right knowledge. Yeah, in fact, your whole point of view throughout this book is what you call us too. So first of all, tell us what is, what do you mean by us too? That is TWO, us hyphen TWO. And then also talk about the many more personal pronouns in Aboriginal languages and what does that say about the perspective? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, you know, you look at the languages and I don't know, grammar is the most boring thing in the world and the most exciting thing at the same time because the patterns in a person's grammar, in a the grammar of a culture kind of expresses a lot of their protocols and ways of being in the world and a lot of their patterns, you know, of governance and, and sociality and, and, and what their worldview is, you know, how, how much are you connected with the landscape and being responsive to it? Or, you know, if you sever yourself from the landscape, then your grammar changes as well. So, you know, and I know the easiest place to start is pronouns. So that's where I start people, you know, what do the pronouns in your language tell you? So people always, they're like, you know, um, my name's Natalie. I'm Natalie. She, her, you know, like brackets pronouns after. And like uh, if I'm in, you know, a conference or something and everyone's doing their pronouns. And so I comes to me and I'm, oh, I better do my pronoun. <laughs> and I'm like, my name's Tyson. Nil uh, Nunung is my pronouns. So, you know, in, in uh, a lot of our Aboriginal languages, we, we don't have gendered pronouns at all. So I say nil nunung, and that means um, that could be he or she. It's the same because we're not really focused on that. <laughs> you know, they, they, we don't really have a lot of use for gendered pronouns. But that doesn't mean we have a lack either because we, we have a lot more pronouns, especially personal pronouns, than English does because all those pronouns express your, especially the first person pronouns, they express your roles in, in the world, those social roles that you occupy in your, uh, in your ecosystem and in your, um, in your society. One of which I'm ignoring right now. I don't know if you can hear my little girl crying for me <laughs> out the door there. <laughs> I think I, I can. <laughs> See, she had a, um, she's only three and I made her, I made her her first fighting stick, like, uh, traditional like woman's fighting stick and you know I don't know what I was thinking because of course she's going to want to fight with it so she's like stabbing her brother in that this morning <laughs> with this stick and I just took it off her um, and she wants it back <laughs> so she's crying outside the door uh, but see I mean back to language that that um, if you ask anybody in Australia what that stick is they'll say oh that's a woman's digging stick they call it a digging stick and it's like, 
it's been linguistically domesticated. So, you know, when Europeans came here, they kind of mapped this gendered understanding of what men and women are over the top of our culture. You know, no, this is a hunter-gatherer society. So like the men over there, you're the hunters and women over there, you're the gatherers. But that stick is not called in any of our languages. It wasn't called a digging stick. It's never been called a digging stick. You know, that's a woman's stick. And that's her like Swiss army knife. She does everything with that. So she hunts with that. She can she uses it for a spear. Um, like this little girl was trying to spear her one-year-old brother before. <laughs> and you know, it's for it's for it's for spearing, it's for throwing, uh, hunting, fighting primarily. If it was called anything, it's called a fighting stick, you know. It's for fighting and 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 but also digging. But see, men used to we used to use boomerangs for digging as well. Uh, I say used to because I've never seen anybody actually do that. Um, but you know, it's so boomerangs were for digging before, like men's, but nobody called them digging sticks. But it's just it's only women's tools and weapons that were linguistically domesticated. Like so, language is very powerful. So you come in and if you get rid of some all of someone's pronouns, if they have a pronoun like like they, they if you've got like five different kinds of us, you know, five different categories of us and you get rid of those, then you're getting rid of all of somebody's way of relating as a group. That's very powerful, isn't it? Yes. So you have us too, which you mentioned before. And I tell you, I'm sorry, I come around a long way around to answering the question, but it's, it goes, um, so there's us too, like the two of us, like a pair, a kinship pair. And then there's like a, us, like an exclusive us, so us but not them. So an exclusive group. And then you've got us, like us all, you know, and then there's heaps of other like different finer things like us belonging to, to this person or this ancestor or this place. So, you know, us belonging to him, us belonging to them, us belonging to this, you know, there's lots of different things. And then there's like, you know, repetition, like you can double up each of those and it means something else too, you know? So if I say, Instead of just ngal us too, if I say ngal ngal, I, I'm 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 meaning it's up to us, you know. Um, yeah, so there's yeah, like only us kind of thing, and then it becomes a, a weird exclusive thing. So there's a lot of there's a lot of pronouns that we have, and it's funny because I, what I found was that all of these social roles described by these pronouns, they're actually um, you see them in complexity theory. So every like node in a complex system, it, it behaves on these basic operating protocols that are patterned on like what Aboriginal language pronouns are. So when I discovered that, I was like, ah, and it's amazing because our language is patterned on the landscape and on complex adaptive systems of, uh, you know, ecosystems, etc. And so, you know, it has those patterns and those roles and can tell you who you're supposed to be. Um, yeah, it's just, it's very, it's really exciting. Like, you, it's hard though to come into this topic, hey, eh? because you, you like start to pick up one thread just to try and like dip your toe in. And then, you know, I've mixed my metaphors there. So I pull one thread and the whole web comes apart. I dip my toe in and the whole shark comes up and grab my leg. <laughs> anyway, either or both of those metaphors is fine. But you see, now you've already, um, you've already said so much. 
in your answer. Um, you know, when I asked the question about how your point of view is us too, I mean, that's a relational point. You know, it immediately yeah. brings me in as the reader in relationship to you as what you're saying. It, it automatically engages me in doing something active. I felt much more active in reading this book than I do many book, uh, many other books. I mean, one reason being that it made me think so hard. It not only made me think so much, I mean, about different things, but it made me think hard because... Oh. What are you, what are you thinking there? <laughs> oh, it, it's just like, uh, this is how lovely dialogue is. So I think we've just invented a theory we might call something like relational passivity or something like that. Sorry, keep going. I'm, I'm just I'm just really excited about what you're saying. So what you are saying is that you live in a culture in, which is defined by connectedness. And of course, the link of that to sustainability, which is, I think, the the kind of meta thing that you're talking about, or, or the purpose of this book is is really to talk about how do we think about ourselves in the world in a way that mm. protects the world and recreates the world. Um, it is that connectivity. That is the basis of ecosystems thinking, right? Yeah. And I, I guess, I mean, this just what we're doing right now is a perfect little microcosm of what needs to happen. Like we have to be engaging in these relational dialogues and relational design processes um, where we haven't already predetermined the outcome you know, based on our individual special brilliance, you know, because there is no individual special brilliance. No one's got a brain that's good enough to come up with a real solution to anything, you know. But us two together, you know, like all this, these sparks going back and forth, and you were saying even just the illusion of doing that in the book and that, that feeling of sitting down and actually, you know, creating that relationship, that us two, that it made you feel something. And the way you expressed it to me, just it, it, it made it sound like it was a, I mean, it was a good feeling and an uplifting, healing kind of feeling, you know? It was. I mean, and it is. I, I can't even say it in the past tense. And if you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Tyson Yankaporta, scholar and member of the Aboriginal Appalach clan in Queensland, Australia. His book is Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. You know, one of the early things you talk about is the impossible physics of civilization. I mean, you know, we started this conversation where it's not just telling us about the ab aboriginal ways of being in the world, but of viewing civilization, quote unquote, through aboriginal eyes. So what are the impossible physics of civilization? Yeah, well, well I guess it's important to define civilization first. Uh, because everybody thinks they've got one. I mean, it, it's presented as a positive thing. And so, I mean, and, and a lot of people will say, well, it's any society that has laws, you know, it has law and order and makes bread and and makes art is a civilization. Well, that just sounds like every human culture on the planet to me. And so, I mean, you could do that. You could just say everyone's, but I don't think that's what it is. Because civilization is something, is a breakaway system that started about, you know, 12,000 years ago. And it's a system that, yeah, it basically denies the laws of physics of, of give and take. It has this idea that you can take more than what there is. It's grounded in this, this narcissism, this sort of original sin thought of I am greater than. 
this idea that a person or people can put themselves above other people or place or any other being, you know, and say, I'm greater than this place exists to serve me. These people exist to serve me. So I guess there is that power need, that artificial power, you know, taking more than what is available. Yes, I guess that's what civilizations do. And there's an impossible physics to it. And I guess I get a bit more technically into it in the book. You know, uh, I talk specifically about the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Yeah, that first law is where energy is, um, is neither created nor destroyed and moves between systems. I, I found out actually recently physicists have worked out that, that energy can actually be destroyed. <laughs> um, and, and is eventually. It's a new discovery, like a recent one. But anyway, that first law is about these uh, infinite interconnected overlapping systems, you know, where energy is transferred between systems constantly and therefore is always changing states and kind of recycling back through these systems. And it's passive because it's passing between different systems and then coming back into them, it's kind of like, you know, manuring you, in you, on, on the grass or something. You know, it's always recycled back through that animal, and in that system, it's it's moving between systems, you know, above and below ground. I guess in that same kind of way, you know. So that's the first law of thermodynamics. So I think of that as the first law of first peoples, you know, because that's how our time, the physics of our time and place, are organised. Uh, you know, along those lines. I thought I was brilliant coming up with that. But then, like, after the book was published, I found out that Charles Darwin had said pretty much the same thing. <laughs> so, yeah. So apparently I'm mates with Charles Darwin now. Anyway, um, yeah, the second law of thermodynamics is that in a closed system, uh, things break down over time, basically, and that that's what time makes time run straight. So that's the, that's the idea of entropy. And so relate that now to what you talk about as indigenous pattern thinking. Oh, sorry. Hang on. I, I never answered the question. Just really quickly before we go to pattern thinking. So I guess basically um, uh, civilized systems are entropic. Basically, a civilization is a community that can only exist by importing resources from elsewhere. That's your basic definition of a civilization. And the physics of it doesn't work. The maths doesn't work. You end up with desert and everything wrecked. So you go back to the earliest civilizations, every single one of them is in desert. And you read about those same places just in the Bible, which happened like five minutes ago. And um, yeah, that wasn't desert before. It's bloody desert now, though. <laughs> anyway, pattern thinking. Well, I mean, it relates to this because pattern thinking, connection, is opposed to this, the impossible physics of a civilization. Um, you know, the civilization is, you call it artificial simplicity, infecting complex patterns. So it's the, the pattern thinking that is, if I have it right, is, is cyclical. It is about connection. And it's also about change, about constant change. So I w would love if you could explain those concepts and how they relate to, you know, what we have to do now if we want to, you know, stop uh, destroying our world and start protecting it. Well, there's a difference between complex and complicated. So, um, you know, a complex system is, is dynamic self-organizing system. Okay. Um, 
and you can't it can't be designed by a singular mind or even a group of minds a complex system is not something that can be designed by anything but a, a complex system itself you know like a really you know a big complex system it has to evolve or co-evolve a complex system has to be in a a co-evolutionary sort of iterative cycle you know and to, to develop out of complexity it can't be designed if you design a system then that can't that can never be complex all it can be is complicated um so for example the the machinery that we're using right now to communicate it's complicated so if i took that little fighting stick my daughter's fighting stick i was telling you about before and i stabbed it through this computer screen um that's it that computer's stuffed like that has to be i'd have to take that to the shop and they would have to fix it so the screen would have to be replaced um but if i missed the computer and it, that stick went into my leg and it put a hole in my leg then i don't have to go to the leg shop and get my leg cut off and re replace the leg you know that's going to heal that little dent in my leg it's going to bleed out for a bit but you know as long as i keep it covered that's going to heal up uh, because my body and i don't have to do anything you know i don't have to look at the manual and go, oh, what's the pattern of all those cells there? I've got to put them all back together. No, no, that's my body's a self-organizing system. It's going to do that for me. And it's a self-organizing system because it's complex. Uh, this computer isn't because it's complicated. It's tinkered. You know, so the International Space Station, that's a complicated system. The fungus that's growing in it currently and destroying it, it is a complex system. <laughs> it's complex and self-organizing to the point that that every time they invent a new poison to try and kill it, then the fungus outsmarts that and like responds to the poison, adapts, grows stronger, <laughs> and is currently taking over the International Space Station. And eventually they're all going to have to leave it and abandon it there in space. Wow. I didn't even know. I guess an indigenous pattern thinking logic looking at that, you know, for a starter, it, it, it makes you laugh. Like there's a lot of humor to be found there. But if you look at the process that it takes for an entire world of nations to develop something like that out of, uh, to actually to extract all the materials from that, okay, if you can use your pattern logic to imagine all of the supply chains that would feed into building that thing and then maintaining it, that's just massive scale destruction on the surface of the earth to produce and maintain that thing. I mean, massive destruction unimaginable a lot of people have had to die and be displaced from their lands in order for just the materials for that to be created i mean the rare earth metals alone for the computers that are communicating with it and that are on board like just the rare earth metals i mean those have to be processed you know they have to be dug up and they're rare for a start and they're usually found on like the land of poor people or indigenous people around the world so those people have to be removed and then they have to be dug up Uh, in a very energy intensive process, but then they have to be refined in the most toxic and radioactive process known to man. And then that radioactive waste has to be stored somewhere, usually on the lands of indigenous people or poor people. And, you know, they have to be stored for thousands of years. How long does a barrel last? I mean, I can't imagine more than a couple of hundred years. What's their plan? What's the long-term plan for the storage of all this stuff? 
there, there is no plan. They haven't factored that in. They haven't set aside the money in their budget for, you know, a, a 3,000 years of care while the half-life of this. So you start to you see all those things and more, so many things. So you look at the economic systems that have to be set up. You look at the supply and demand things that happen and, and that, that are impacted with each of these things being produced and, and, you know, the way that system can't be allowed to just be a complex adaptive system, but it has to be tinkered as well and made into a complicated system so that it can be controlled and monopolized and, and weighed in the favor of some rather than others, because we couldn't possibly allow it to just do what a natural system does and distribute the energy equally throughout the system. Oh my goodness, no. You know, we, <laughs> it has to be tinkered. And so this tinkered monstrosity floating in space, which has grown out of this tinkered monstrosity of an economic system and a civilization that's destroyed the lives of and, and our habitat as human beings, it's there floating around in space. Eventually all the radioactive waste is gonna leak out of them barrels and, um, you know, because we need those those rare earth metals for our phones and our computers, and we're not going to stop. So eventually, all that uh, radioactive waste is going to leak out of the barrels, and it's basically going to make the the entire world so radioactive that, you know, life as we know it is not going to be able to live here. However, on the bright side, <laughs> centuries after the the space station is um is abandoned, there's going to be this fungus out there growing in space. And what's in space? Radiation. So it's going to be being exposed to all these like quite high levels of radiation out in space for, you know, centuries. And we know how highly adaptive it is. So it's going to adapt to that. It's probably going to get bored there floating in space too. So it might, I don't know, learn to play chess or something. But eventually it's going to re-enter the atmosphere. And... I don't know, because it's been out in that radiation for so long, maybe a bunch of spores will survive the burn-up on re-entry. And then suddenly you've got a radiation-resistant life form that's just coming back onto this rock and uh, repopulating it with, like, walk-and-talking mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there's a wonderful... Um book and movie called Fantastic Fungi, I think is what it's called, which I, I just saw, which would be completely, uh, would just love what you just said. It, it completely <laughs> in the context of that wonderful movie. But so Tyson Yunkaporta, in, in this book, in Sand Talk, I want to kind of come back then to what you were just talking about and root it again in the Aboriginal experience. And and so one thing I want to ask you about, which is something I've always wondered about and never quite understood, is song lines. What are they and how do they how do they embody the kind of learning and perspective that you've just been talking about? Well, uh, what's your understanding of ley lines from that Anglo-Celtic tradition? I understand them as as lines of power in energy, lines of energy in the earth. And have you come across any ideas, uh, any folklore associated with those ley lines as well? What you call folklore, the fairy roads and all that sort of stuff. Have you come across that? Uh, I don't know how they say it because I know I'm going to get it wrong anyway. So I'll just say um, feng shui. 
it's like, no, you can't put this house here. It's sitting right on the eye of a dragon. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. But I thought of the song lines, aren't they more than that? Aren't they? Yeah, they are. But I'm just, I'm just trying to tease out, like, I don't know. I, I just because this is a dialogue, I just want to get your background mm-hmm. knowledge, like what you have. Mm-hmm. And it must be there. Like, the, everybody knows this stuff. Like, indigenous knowledge, it's stuff that everybody knows and it's just out of their grasp. And they've probably heard bits and pieces throughout their life that they haven't quite put together. Like you would have heard of fairy rings and fairy roads and fairy dances. And then you would have heard of like the, the pathways of gods traveling. Uh, you might have heard about Alexander the Great following the pathway of Dionysius when he originally, during the act of creation, traveled out from where India was. And he was basically following that road to find India. So the more you dig around in these ideas, these little superstitions and lovely little traditions and rituals around ley lines in the Anglo-Celtic tradition and feng shui in the, in the Chinese tradition and anywhere around the world that you see these sorts of things. Um, when you start to dig around in those, you start to see clues. You start to see, oh, these are usually attached to acts and moments and stories of creation. And at some stage, creator beings were walking or moving or burrowing or swimming along these paths or flying. And that the action of their movements through the landscape actually created these song lines, these lines of energy. And these lines of energy remain networked across the landscape, latticed everywhere, like a big web. Um, But that each line um, can be sung. And it can be sung as a story, you know. So these are narrative. So landscape is story and landscape is music and landscape is knowledge. And it is thus because of song lines. So song lines is just the English word for them, you know, because it was, that was the part that they focused on. Because I guess anthropologists were interested in these. I don't know, there was a romantic, like, you know, you'd see an old guy walking along uh, singing a song you know, like a GPS to find his way, you know, so I suppose that that was exciting to people, but it's more than that, you know, it's visual and it's maps drawn in the sand. Thus the idea of sand talk, you know, sand talk is a way of conveying knowledge by drawing images in the sand, but these song lines are, you know, these are visual, you know, these are visual inner maps that you have in your mind as a kind of bird's eye view of landscape. And as you probably notice with most Aboriginal art, most Aboriginal art that you see will be almost like a bird's eye view of a landscape um, because that's what these things are. So these dreamings, you know, they stretch right across the landscape and it's, it's your, your cognition, your being, everything, your body, your understanding of the world, your way of governing, your way of living, your way of being a custodian of different bioregional ecosystems, all these things are sung into the landscape. And these stories interconnect like perfectly and give you a roadmap of how to live in the world, how to be. They give you warnings of what to be careful of. And pretty much all of them end up close to their beginning or somewhere along the line, warn you against that narcissism, that assumption that you are better than someone else or something else, that you are above anyone else. Because this is, um, you know, our entire culture, every part of it, 
as with any sustainable culture, it has to be something that it's built to to suppress, uh, to contain the excesses of narcissism. Any system that is going to last with human beings in it has to be something that has a way of curtailing uh, the excesses of narcissists. I've always thought of myself as as an anarchist, an anarchist in the sense of believing in the democratic self-organization of people. And that is very much what you describe here. And in fact, you know, I remember a long time ago reading a book about, I think it was by Marshall Solins, and it was about tribal cultures and made the point that the 99% of human history, we lived in these democratic, self-organized bands where everyone was basically equal and chieftains were only chiefs or leaders as long as they could demonstrate that they had the capacity for leadership. And as soon as they lost that, they were done. Yeah, that's it. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, I don't know, I do address in the book quite a bit of the myths of primitivism and a lot of the paleolithic sort of misconceptions, the story that survival of the fittest story that's been mapped over our past, over most of human history. Yeah, we've really been lied to about that. And I guess it's it's really thoughtfully engaging with Indigenous knowledge and um, Indigenous communities over time where, where you'll find that 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 lie where you'll expose it and and try and f- start to get uh, an idea of a pattern of of what actually was yeah i mean just i mentioned before that this this misconception that men were the hunters and women were the gatherers that's that's caused a lot of damage in the world that idea you know everything that we have these notions of the fittest survive you know the chief is the one who's the best fighter and he only gets to be chief for as long as he's stronger than everyone else. And then someone else will come up and kill him and then he'll take over. Always a he for some reason. You know, there was a, I read a book, uh, uh, Lier Keith, I think her name was. She's um, a radical feminist uh, writer from over there in the States. And she was talking about the the way these these little bone discs that they were digging up in the in the floors of caves from Paleolithic sites, all around, archaeology sites all around the world, they kept finding these bone discs with notches around the outside of, of the circle. And no matter where it was, they always seemed to have the same, roughly the same kind of number. You know, it was always between about, you know, 26 and 31 kind of notches around the outside of the thing. Now, what could, the, what could these have been for? What could they have been for? And no one could figure it out because they hadn't had any female... <laughs> They hadn't any female archaeologists yet. <laughs> like your first intern who didn't have a penis coming into that site, she goes, yeah, I know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> She's like controlling her fertility and like counting the days and trying to figure out when she needs to do this <laughs> intervention to make sure she's going to have or not have this child. You know, it's um Fantastic. So she's regulating her cycle there. And um, and it's like, no, no, that can't be possible. They weren't sophisticated enough. They were just like randomly walking around like animals, like raping each other and smashing <laughs> each other over the head. Surely, surely. No. Yeah. I don't know. I think I, I think Western culture opened itself up to the idea of 
sophisticated paleolithic lifestyles when that that uh, genome project sort of uh, showed that <laughs> that um europeans are basically neanderthals are all descended from neanderthals and it was like suddenly it was like it was a few weeks like that that story came out and then there was just this silence and a few weeks later like this spate of stories came out you can see actually we're discovering that that neanderthals were actually really uh really quite advanced <laughs> you know sophisticated people um <laughs> and and so they let go of a lot of things like they suddenly trotted out these bones that they they must have been keeping in a cupboard somewhere you know where it's like look we've got like a, a 70 year old dude who was born disabled um so he couldn't even walk we got the bones of of him so a they must have been caring for disabled people so they must have had quite abundant food and they must have been caring for each other they also must have had really good medicine because we've got these fracture patterns in the bones that are like rodeo clowns so they must have been able to heal fractures really quickly um oh wow they've got they're drilling holes in the skull to like let pressure out after they've had a head wound and then living afterwards so they had surgery so they you know talked about all these things and went wow but what they i mean they ignored some things though so they brushed over you know the fact that men and women had the same fracture patterns that could only come from hunting they ignored that because that's a sacred cow you know men are hunters and women are gatherers is a sacred cow and you don't want to mess with that <laughs> so you know even though male and female skeletons had the same hunter fracture patterns it's like no, we're going to ignore that. Um, so you know they're really gradually coming around. I guess it, you know narcissism is a hard thing to um, to hack your way through. Yes, we know that here in this country, having one of the prime specimens of that as our president, isn't he just a little specimen? Yeah, oh, he, magnificent man. He must have been like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. He's a he's a prime example of manhood that one is it's only the only the fittest and the strongest surviving there i tell you it must be those bloodlines there's like superior awesome eugenics inspired bloodlines uh to produce such a magnificent uh specimen a magnificent beast this is writer's voice we're talking with tyson yankaporta his book is sand talk how indigenous thinking can save the world. You know, you have different constructs in the book, which was part of me thinking hard. So you talk about five different ways of thinking in the Aboriginal way of thinking. So kinship mind, story mind, dreaming mind, ancestor mind, and pattern mind. Could you put those together for, for us and explain their interrelationship, what they are in their interrelationship? Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean they're um, they're not things that are named or even separated, you know, in our culture. But they're just, I mean, yeah, they're, you're right to call them constructs, because really they're just ways in to be able to understand understand an indigenous worldview, you know. So they're kind of digestible chunks that uh, a person could could come to, could come in and and see those things and experience them and and begin to immerse themselves in in a way of uh, knowing and being in the world which is that is basically just how we're designed to know and be as human beings in this world you know we are organisms we are animals and we do have a habitat 
and habitats are constantly changing and we're supposed to adapt and change and move with that habitat and be shaped by it in our language and speech. But in order to live like that, there are, there are certain ways of thinking and ways of being and knowing that you need to um, be embodying, not just learn or know about. You have to embody these things. So I guess these five things, and, and I challenge people to actually try and put them all together into one thing and to imagine what that looks like. So these five things, yeah, like I said, there's that kinship mind, I vaguely call it. I don't want to call these things anything because I don't want people to bloody TM, like, uh, you know, I want people to go and think about it and, and, and build their own way based on their own place, their own bioregion and culture of where they are, put their own things together and call them or not call them, you know, in their own language way from that place. Like, I don't want to put this thing on it that's, oh, yeah, this is Tyson Yonko Porter's bloody mind thing way or whatever, you know, brand it, IP it, bloody whatever. I, I don't like that. This is just open source. You just have a play with it. But anyway, you got that kinship mind. It's that everything's, um, that nothing exists on its own. Everything exists in relation to something else is the basic central concept of that. So it's basically, you know, everything that you look at is in a context, in a relational context with other things and, and a field around it, including yourself. So there's no such thing as objectivity. Everything's going to be subjective. Everything's going to be, you know, from your standpoint, you and the people around you that you're related to. Um, you're part of a field that's observing itself. <laughs> So there, there you go. That sorts out the uh, the uncertainty problem there. And story mind? The story mind is basically you're building, uh, it's what we're doing, the, the us two thing that we were talking about before. It's dialogical um, sort of sharing of narratives, you know, uh, sitting together alongside each other, sharing those stories. So basically I think I, I'd say something like, um, you know, like a story is just it's something to... Um, to put children to sleep. But if you want to be awake and grown, then you have to have a dialogical sharing of stories, which I call a yarn. You know, it's, um, you know, stories don't mean anything until they come alongside someone else's stories. And, and you're seeing, you know, from that point of view as well, because it forms something else in the aggregate. When you get lots of stories together in the aggregate, that's where the truth starts to emerge, you know? And so I want to ask, I, I guess I want to finish on what you talk about in, in the latter part of the book, Tyson Yunkaporta in Sand Talk, which is you talk about kind of the four principles of relating in a way that can protect the earth. And I don't know if you even use that word protect. You use a different word I talk about us being a custodial species. Custodians, that's it. We're a custodial yeah. species. And so you talk about respect, connect, reflect, and direct. And so tell us about that, those words, those concepts within the context of us being a custodial species of how we need to act with each other and the earth to be able to do that. You know, I guess these these complicated systems uh, have been developed using exactly those same four steps, but in reverse. So, you know, 
the, the hero comes into the space and directs change. This singular individual, this person who has this amazing understanding and knowledge and strength and capacity and, and moral superiority and all the rest and spiritual superiority comes into a context and tries to, you know, build order from chaos. So that's the first step, direct. And um, it doesn't work. It all goes wrong. You know, it just columbuses into a big mess. And so the next step then, I guess, is, um, is reflect. So it's direct and then reflect and sitting down, head in hands, thinking what the hell went wrong, you know, and all right, we better crunch the numbers. We better check the data, try and figure out where the hell this went wrong. And that's usually at the point where people realize, ah, well, we probably missed a step and that's connect. Uh, Yeah, we should have formed relationships and we probably should have understood how things were connected uh, across this system. All the connections and and the uh, lines of communication and energy exchange and things like that first before we came in and just started directing change because we're kind of messed it up now. So, um, so yeah, we'll do that now. We'll we'll start making these relationships, and then finally, um, finally arriving at at the point of respect. So it's kind of like, you know, oh my goodness, you know, the wisdom of this culture is amazing. You know, we're gonna put a quote from that on a poster with a picture of one of the elders and we're going to put it on the the door of our toilet because that really feeds my soul i i I feel so much respect for this culture i'm going to buy a dream catcher that's amazing so you know it goes it's kind of like this reversal of the process it goes you know direct reflect connect respect um a sustainable way forward is simply to reverse that to start with respect because that's the work of your spirit. And then you, then you can begin to connect to build relationships. And that's the work of your heart. So respect, connect, and then reflect. Reflect, that's your, um, the work of your head. And you don't do that on your own. You do that in us twos. From the relationships that you made in the former uh, step, you do that in your us twos and in your uses, all your other uses, your exclusive groups, you know, just women, um, you know, or just men or just young people, just old people, you know, just people who speak this language, etc. But then in the bigger us's where all of those exclusive groups interact and, and come together because you need that diversity. You need diverse things interacting. So what have you done? You've respected, connected and reflected. And in reflecting you, you're building the theory and the bodies of knowledge collectively that you need to move forward as custodians of this reality as as a custodial species and to act properly in perfect ways in that place. And that leads you to the final step, which is direct. So direct is the work of your hands as you actually act on the world around you. That's when you build or make or do. And that's the correct sequence. If you come in straight away with the work of the hands and you start to build, destroy, cut down, dig up, um, it all goes the wrong way. I guess it's, it's all these exceptional individuals and exceptional uh, groups of people who believe in their exceptionalism, which kind of have, have messed things up and reversed that process somewhat. Well, 
Tyson Yunkaporta, it has been really, really such a privilege to talk with you about your book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Tyson Yunkaporta is an academic and arts critic and a researcher who belongs to the Appalach clan in far north Queensland. He carves traditional tools and weapons and also works as a senior lecturer in Indigenous Knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. You can also sign up to get the show delivered straight to your inbox or subscribe to the podcast and the newsletter. And follow us on Twitter at Writer's Voice, all one word. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon.